This is a Chronicle podcast, bringing you ideas in the service of medicine. From the Chronicle podcast system, this is the NPC podcast of the National Pharmaceutical Congress for February 22, 2023. The NPC podcast is where we discuss and consider the purpose, process and people of the pharma industry, and today, we'll continue the healthcare conversation. This program is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. The industry is rapidly evolving, and Impress is designed to help you evolve with it. Learn more about Impress tailored best-in-class solutions at www.impress.com. Our guest today is Dr. Kwajo Kiramanteng, critical care and palliative physician at the Ottawa Hospital, and host of the Solving Healthcare podcast. Dr. K will join your hosts, Jim, Mark, and Mitch. And to start today's conversation, here's Mitch Shannon, CEO of Chronicle Companies. Welcome back to the NPC podcast from the National Pharmaceutical Congress. I'm your podcast co-host, Mitch Shannon, up here in our historic podcast gondola at the top of the arena, where the escalators don't run and the Amazon delivery drivers stay away. Seated comfortably in the gondola is Mark McElwain, the pharmaceutical industry consultant and life sciences expert. Mark, kind of hard to beat the view from up here, don't you agree? Absolutely. And on a crisp day like today, I'm grateful that we're right above the hot stove club and grateful again that hot air rises. And we've got enough to go around here. So with us again is James Shea, General Manager of the Council for Continuing Pharmaceutical Education in frigid Montreal. Jim, aren't you supposed to be on holidays today? Isn't your wife waiting for you at the Maple Leaf Lounge at Trudeau Airport? Well, that's both an interesting question and editorial comment because, you know, I think we have to define holiday appropriately. To my wife waiting at the airport without me, it is a holiday. So, you know, something gained. Gotcha. Well, collectively, we are your podcast hosts, known as Jim, Mark, and Mitch, because all the snappy brand names were already taken, such as Lester's Delicatessen or EQ Bank. It's a pleasure to welcome to the gondola the physician, podcast host, blogger, and health policy commentator, Dr. Quajo Karamanting. Dr. K, it's great to see you again. Mitch, Mark, Jim, this is an absolute pleasure. I've been looking forward to this all week, and thank you so much for having me. Ah, the pleasure's ours. Let's get to it then. So you are the head of the critical care department at the Ottawa Hospital. Could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and how you became interested in palliative and intensive care medicine? Yeah, I so grew up in Edmonton, Alberta, went to med school out there. Always knew I wanted to do a specialty that involved being pushed, being challenged and and not knowing exactly what's going through the door. I'm not much for predictability or routine and had a a bit of a tough time trying to find a home. And then as a a medical student, I did an elective at Foothills Hospital in their ICU. And I'll tell you, the second I walked through that door, I knew I was home. I knew this was what I was meant to do. There was a a guy that had a significant motor vehicle accident. There was another patient that needed to have a tracheostomy. So basically a hole in their neck to be able to make sure that they could breathe okay. We had all these amazing, challenging cases, and we worked as a team. We put our heads together to try and solve these many 
problems that our patients were undertaking. Communication was essential and I, I was in love. And so I jumped on the train. I knew I wanted to be an intensive care doctor. So I went through the route of internal medicine and along the way, it was a very competitive field. So I asked myself what would be a unique perspective to add to my clinical arsenal and palliative care. It wasn't really on my radar until I met one of the most amazing human beings that I could think of, Dr. John Seeley, who was the head of palliative care for an extended period of time in Ottawa. And he had this uncanny ability to put anyone at ease, no matter what situation it was, whether it was someone dying unexpectedly, whether it was a contentious issue amongst family or the care team. And his approach on just humanizing everybody, he was a a bit of an intimidating man, 6'4", probably weighed in at least 225, but soft-spoken, put his hands on patients. Like, when you remember when that was still something you would see very common and something that I have taken away from having him as someone to look up to. And putting these two specialties together, it only made sense because, of unfortunately, a large proportion of our patients don't survive. And in a lot of ways, one of the most meaningful ways of interacting with patients and families is to communicate effectively and to be compassionate and empathetic and all those skills I acquired through palliative care. And honestly, I'm really grateful. I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be able to be part of both specialties. Quadro, it's Mark. So can you discuss the challenges or barriers you faced as a Black Canadian doctor in the healthcare system and your approach for overcoming them? Yeah, great question. So as a Black physician, you realize you stick out like a sore thumb. And I unfortunately kind of had the expectations of entering medicine that almost the, the mindset that medicine is immune to racism in some way, like it's really intellectual folks, rational. It's just more about patient care. And, and you slowly realize there's far from the truth, unfortunately. So, you know, my personal experiences, I've been, patients have called me everything you could think of. I've been asked when the real doctor is going to come into the room. Even as department head recently, one of the patients asked, like I was, I was introduced as the chief of the department and they looked in disbelief and said, oh, you mean chief of some African tribe? And, you know, like, so like these attitudes are deep seated. And I think I wasn't ignorant to patient outcomes, like how, you know, patient outcomes could be impacted by like people's race. But as a professional, I think it was a little bit more unexpected. And there's still even as a leader, there's still aspects of being a minority leader or a, a black leader that are unique too. Like you have a unique perspective for most scenarios, especially if you're doing any bit of advocacy for racialized communities or what have you, like you often have to stick your neck out there. And, and when you vocalize some of these things that maybe aren't seen as a mainstream, you know, there could be opposition. So that there's a whole element of, you know, coming through the ranks. But even as a leader, you, you still have, unfortunately, some opposition and obstacles to overcome. Well, thanks. That's important for us to hear. So you also host the podcast, Solving Healthcare. We'll give you a plug there. Uh, which centers around resource optimization in healthcare. 
And I should say, I checked it out yesterday and I was impressed. It was pretty fast paced. So could you tell us more about the podcast and what topics you cover? Yeah, thanks for that, Mark. And thanks for the plug. It's always appreciated. The genesis of it was a bit maybe unexpected. I started a research program called Resource Optimization Network, looking at ways that we can make healthcare more sustainable. And I just found that despite producing papers in reasonable ranking medical journals, nothing was changing. Really, nothing was changing. So we asked ourselves, how do we get the word out on some of these initiatives? How do we you know, actually create change? And the idea of hosting a podcast came about. And so we covered some of the issues that we were seeing firsthand, like the lack of advanced care planning and how inefficient that could cause the strains that could put on the system. We talked about ways of healthcare delivery that could be more efficient, like utilizing scribes, utilizing virtual care as a platform. And then the pandemic happened and we just wanted to be a voice of reason and balance. And so we covered a lot of that. And then throughout the pandemic, it was very clear that, you know, metabolic health was a concern. So metabolic health being obesity, type two diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, like any a constellation of those symptoms is what we were seeing amongst our COVID patients. So to me, learning that some of that aspect can be reversed or improved, I start, we really put our heads together and say, how can we advocate for prevention? Talk about people getting healthier, learning what to eat, how to move their bodies, creating a sense of community, uh, reducing their stress. So that was a huge driver. I would say is our main point of view right now. The, the kind of thesis we're at is what can we talk about or tools we could provide our listeners to avoid seeing someone like me in an intensive care unit? Because when you look at resource utilization and optimization, the tickets to avoid entering the door, it really is. Like when you look at 1% of your gross domestic product is involved in taking care of ICU patients, a number I often throw out there, $50,000 for a COVID admission, one patient, $50,000. So let's invest, let's strategize, let's give people the tools to avoid using acute care, avoid seeing me in an ICU. And that's been a, the biggest passion of late. That's super interesting. It's Jim here. Now you talked already about avoidance. Can you tell us more about how technology can be leveraged to, to improve resource optimization and make healthcare more equitable in those patients that have not avoided coming to see you? No, Jim, this is one of my favorite topics because I don't think we leverage technology as much as we could be. I just give some examples. So when, like at this stage, when we had to use a lot of virtual health and telehealth, I think we could amplify that significantly. Like one of our initiatives that we're doing is virtual critical care. So my team can see a patient in a, in a smaller hospital, smaller community hospital, and help resuscitate them, help address some of their clinical needs and educate the staff around there to avoid being transferred to a tertiary or quaternary care facility because they're getting world-class expertise in the moment when they need it. And yes, we might not be physically there, but we are still using the tools in front of us to be able to assess and manage the patient. There's the devices out there like wearables. Patients could be put on 
that we could see if they're deteriorating. So if they're in that small community, they're wearing their wearables and I could get an alert on my, my cell phone, my, my smart watch, whatever it might be to tell me, Hey, this patient might not be doing well. This is an early warning system. Utilizing that technology to intervene before they become visibly sicker, for example. So the technology really is there. In my opinion, I think the issue in medicine is we're dinosaurs. We don't like change. We don't like to pivot, even though we did a little bit of that during the pandemic. But there's a lot of resources and tech that are available now that I truly believe could better serve our patients. It's amazing. Is there a case you can share with us without, you know, as you would without divulging any private information where you found something, you were using tech and it, it, it saved somebody's life or it, it was an intervention that, you know, saved the day? Yeah, this is a good question. I don't have an extreme version of that. I have like maybe a minor version where one of the programs that's one of our ICU docs is developing, they could use a tool that could tell you if you're ready to come off a ventilator. And that tool will save you, in my opinion, I've seen it where clinically we look at the patient and we, we're like, oh, you know what? I think they need another two days on the ventilator. The algorithm said, hey, it's time to get that patient off the ventilator. So we bit and the patient did fine. And the two days that maybe we delayed, that might be the day they get a complication like a pneumonia or a blood clot or some other form of infection. There's another version of that too, that the same doc, Andrew Seeley implemented where I'm trying to think of how to explain this one condensedly. When people elect to donate their organs and it looks like they're not going to survive. One of the rules is that the patient has to, unfortunately, when life support is removed, they have to die within two hours for them to be considered a donor. And so a lot of resources go into it, like the transplant team moves in there and all that stuff. And they have a technology to say that this patient is likely to die within two hours or not. And so that, you know, when it's right, it saves the system up to $30,000. And so yeah, like there's the technology is there. It's developing. We just have to be willing to dive in. That's fascinating. So you're listening to the physician and all-round polymath, Dr. Kwajo Karamanting, coming to you from the nation's capital here on the NPC podcast. So as Mark mentioned, uh, you spoke at this year's National Pharmaceutical Congress in November. Your keynote presentation, uh, A Physician's Perspective, sparked a lot of interest. I'd say your talk was candid, challenging and straight from the heart. And I'd also say that many, many in the pharma business don't get that kind of unvarnished truth from our medical colleagues and partners. Can you tell us a little bit about the planning behind your talk? Yeah, no, thanks for that, Mitch. I think where it came from was as a guy that clearly has experienced racism his whole life, I just was of the culture that, you know, just put your head down and keep hustling. These things are going to happen don't worry about it. And the events around George Floyd just tipped the scales. Like it just tipped for so many of us. And instead of being on the sidelines, if you will, to me, it was time to really try and be impactful. And being impactful means being vulnerable to a certain degree and opening up about some of the tough moments that I've experienced personally. And as tough as it, as it is, it's what's needed. 
a lot of people in that room won't forget what I said. And they'll leave there more likely to to be an ally, essentially, and want to create change. And so that's what went behind that. I think I alluded to it, Mitch, during the talk. I don't love giving these talks. It's a challenging thing to go through. And every time you do it, you feel exhausted. You feel, you know, that you gave a, a piece of yourself out there. But if it makes a difference, if the next hire, you're thinking about the diversity angle or the next time you you witness some racist act happen in front of you, you step in and that racialized person now feels seen. That matters. Because I think... I was talking to a, a colleague the other day about the events in the States, Tyree Nichols being, being beat to death by cops. And, you know, it's, and a lot of us, I, I know I haven't really commented on it. I haven't really dove into it because it's, you're constantly on morn in mourning. Like that, that's the way they put it. And I'm like, it's so true. Like you're always, there's always something to be sad about when it comes to this. And I don't know, that was one of the statement that really stuck with me because it's just another unfortunate story that another black man gets treated like he doesn't matter. And yeah. You mentioned uh, George Floyd. And I think one of the most depressing things that's happened uh, over the last couple of years is his name has become a verb. And there was another incident uh, just a couple of months ago, a young black man who uh, was pleading with the cops who uh, ultimately killed him. Don't George Floyd me. I mean, that that is... Absolutely appalling. Yeah. No, it is appalling, but it is what, unfortunately, where we're at, where that kind of vernacular could be used. It's, I don't know. Clearly, I do think we're in a better spot than we have been in in the past in terms of the awareness and the, the value of acknowledging these things, but clearly we still have a lot of work to do. Kwajo, it's Mark. So let's build on that. Can you offer any other comments about the importance of improving diversity and inclusion in our healthcare system, you know, particularly in your area of critical care? Yeah, the importance is a lot of us value doing our the best for our patients, serving our patients. And being a diverse organization, you could only make your group stronger. Like that added perspective is only going to improve patient care. Like I can't count how many times in my career, me being black and recognizing a black presentation or, you know, whether someone's having a sickle cell crisis or just being able to relate to them at a personal level because of of shared experience has improved that patient's experience. And that's what it's all about. And if we're going to take it as seriously as we say we are, you, this is a step like having representation matters. And as I said, it will only make your organization stronger. It will show you where your soft spots are, where where you're missing out on. And like, it's a win-win as far as I'm concerned. It's not like, oh, we got to be more diverse and and put our heads down. It's, hey, we're going to be more diverse because we're going to, it's going to make our organization stronger. And then the other part of it too, is just be a compassionate person. Like, God damn it. Like at this point, like just lean on compassion. Why you want to? Treat someone like inferiorly just based on the way they look or the way they speak, you know, come at it with some love. It's time. Absolutely. And we were wondering if you could share a tangible example of a situation where cultural competency made a significant difference in patient care. Yeah, I I can think of at least 
a couple. So I remember, so sickle cell is a, a blood disorder that affects people from African descent and they could come in with pain crises because basically they're getting poor blood flow to their organs. And I remember seeing this young lady that was in agony, but not expressing it the way maybe you or I would. But I don't know if this is documented, but a lot of black women, they're stoic. They don't want to show that they're uncomfortable. And she was being stoic and saying like, I need pain medication. And I remember walking by, it's not even someone, I don't think I was involved directly. I just went to the, either the nurse or the trainee and saying like, you need to treat her pain. Okay. Like she's clearly in agony, like grab some pain medication and keep doing this until she is comfortable. Full stop. There was another situation when near uh, a palliative patient that was viewed to be a little bit challenging and she came, she was from African descent and they just remember being anxious about meeting this person and after meeting them and talking about shared experiences and cultural shared experiences and like she totally softened, was a completely different person, opened up about her fears and just, you know, her dying experience was completely changed. More open with their family. We talked about how important that is to not hide anything like this is your time, right? Like, and yeah, I'll never forget it because it was someone that almost everybody was saying you can't connect with and we absolutely connected. So those are a couple examples I can think of off the top of my head. Great examples. It's, it's Jim here. Maybe if we can go even further and deeper on this, maybe a bit tangential, but uh, certainly intersects with what you're talking about already is, do you have any suggestions on uh, how the healthcare system itself can address and overcome some of the barriers to access for some of the marginalized communities that are out there? Yeah, I think twofold. I would say, you know, make sure you collect the data. I think we we appreciated this more in COVID. We weren't doing much in the way of race-based data until later in the, the first wave or after the first wave. And the impact of that was, in my mind, dramatic. It recognized that the highest risk people were people of color that, you know, had maybe their lower socioeconomics, were living in multi-generational homes that were essential workers. And it allowed us to be able to intervene appropriately. So to be able to bring vaccines to them, this didn't happen, but paid leave as a potential option, isolation centers in the community, you could bring meaningful interventions that will impact patient outcomes significantly when you collect the data. And the other answer to that is, this is where I think representation is also important because to be able to communicate, to be able to hear their concerns, it's much easier to hear it from someone that might be in the community already or appears that has similar uh, background as them. And so I think this is where the value of representation can really make a difference. But yeah, data and representation. Well, let's go even further down then. Let, let's focus on the pharmaceutical industry itself. Is How do you think the, uh, the pharmaceutical industry can improve and better serve the diverse communities? Yeah, here's another one where, you know, when you're doing your trials, when you're trying to assess impact, it's it can't just be, you know, white Anglo-Saxon folk. The data's got to be diverse. Because one thing, if, you've, if we've learned anything, is that medication, treatment, it can differ between races, right? 
Like I think of ACE inhibitors as a s- small example for for black folks. That's not going to impact their blood pressure. So if we want to make a difference, we need to collect the data and, and make sure that there's a diverse set of patients within those studies. I think also just always thinking about not just what's going to make the most dollar, but also thinking about if this medication or treatment is going to make a difference, who needs it the most? And sometimes that's going to be racialized communities. Sometimes it isn't. But when it is going to be racialized communities, like when I think of metabolic disease as an example, of like it's right there. Yeah, we, we have to. And the way to me to sell it is, yeah, maybe it's, it takes more investment. It takes more time. But the indirect cost of saving that ICU admission, saving that hospitalization is so important. So I, I think that would be my message to the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, make sure that racialized folks are are seen. Yeah, it's getting away from, you know, randomized clinical trials to stratified randomized clinical trials. So stratification through racial uh, groups be, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's now the, the, the best way to go about it. And I'm hoping that industry's doing that a lot more. And honestly, if I'm being fair, I think it's better in general because the way medicine is going, it's going to be personalized. It's going to be more the question of who is this medication most ideal for? Who is this medication most likely going to work with? And to be able to do that, you need a diverse set of data, race, sex, age, body type, you name it. I don't know how far away we are from this, but even genetic profiling, like you're going to want to be able to personalize that medication to find that ideal candidate. So it's coming. So as we wind down our podcast, we're going to invite you to play our word association game. So just go ahead and say the first thing that comes to mind in response to each of the following phrases or words. So are you ready? Always. That's that's good. Okay. Diversity. Matters. Equity. Yes. Patient care. Evolving. Palliative care. Universal. Cultural competency. Fancy. (laughs) (laughs) Not your favorite term, I gather. A boatload of points were awarded, though. I'll tell you that, uh, gentlemen. I agree. Lots of good points there. Thank you for those answers. And of course, you know, finally, you know, you've already been talking a lot about the future, but we're, you know, we're coming to our prognostication corner and we, we've got to do it because now we've bought the Southeast uh, corners of every NHL uh, arena uh, in Canada and uh, on the digital board. So, you know, prognostication corner is going to be a, a big thing. So what bold predictions are you, would you like to make or can you make or wish for over the next, uh, say, 12 to 60 months. Healthcare is going to change significantly. The way we deliver it, the amount of public-private partnerships, I think you're going to slowly see more emphasis on prevention. I think people are tired. I think people are tired of the current healthcare system because it's failing. I think people clearly see it's never been this bad. And I'll say full stop, I've never seen it this bad in my almost 20 years of being involved in healthcare. So you're going to see some significant pivots. I think the amount of 
resistance to change that we've seen traditionally is going to dampen, but healthcare today is not going to look the same as it will tomorrow, for sure. Dr. K. Quadro, thanks for spending uh, some time with us and sharing your insights with our listeners. I understand you got another media appearance coming up. You're going to be taping an episode of The Social on CTV very soon. We'll be checking our local TV listings for that. And I hope we get to see you when you're in Toronto. Mitch, it would be an absolute slice. Jim, Mark, thanks for inviting me. And collectively, you guys are making a difference. And all of us, by having conversations like this, are making a difference. So thank you for including me. Well, thank you. Good stuff. Huge pleasure. And to our listeners, many thanks for spending your time with us. Uh, We'll speak to you again next week. If you've got questions for Dr. K, just send an email to health at chronicle.org. As always, we invite your comments about today's conversation. And if you attach your question as a voice clip, you might just become part of a future episode. We hope you enjoyed today's NPC podcast. If you did, please like it, rate it, recommend it, and remember to share it with your network. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, or just ask your smart device to play the National Pharmaceutical Congress podcast on Audible, or TuneIn Radio, or Spotify, or Apple Music. The NPC podcast is presented in cooperation with Impress, Canada's next-generation commercial partner. Check them out at www.impress.com. I'm your announcer, Leona Void, speaking. Thank you for your time today. This podcast was produced by Jeremy Visser, assisted by Spencer West Coast Eng, and Amy Ray Elder. Research for this program came from John Evans. The musical theme is performed with Joie de Vivre by the NPC Podcast Orchestra, under the direction of maestro Nicola Melbrook. We'll speak again next week.